The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on News Talk 1493.9 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On the Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Oh, good Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Paul and here with my regular guests before we get going and before I introduce them they've asked me to make this quick announcement I-57 southbound is now open I-57 northbound is still closed so evidently both lanes must have been closed but now I-57 southbound is now open and again 57 northbound is still closed so brief update there well good morning as I said I'm here with uh, Dr. Fred Gertz in person, live in person. Yeah, good to be back together, um, together again. Yeah, well, it's good timing too. I mean, it's not, there's been a few things that have happened since <clears throat> we've seen each other. And I have certified financial professionals, uh, Ryan Repco and David Rudy, who work with me at Rudy Wealth Management. You heard the numbers, 356-9397 if you want to call in, 351-5357 if you want to text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Oh, you know you're getting old when you get winded by just reading. <laughs> <laughs> Try a walk maybe once a week. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, probably a good idea. Well, like I said, there's plenty to talk about today. One of my clients texts me on the way here and kind of jokingly, hey, you're probably struggling with things to talk about. <laughs> and my comment back to him was, you know, it's interesting after 39 years, it, it just, it's always deja vu all over again. Um, it's always something. And we want to give a little bit of perspective today uh, surrounding that. But naturally, you know, it's one thing to have a market decline and we're in correction territory on the broad U.S. market down about 13%. And I suppose a globally diversified portfolio, uh, pretty similar. Uh, the higher tech stocks uh, measured by the NASDAQ are fully in bear territory, which means they're down 20% or more. And then, of course, if you look at some of the high-flying tech stocks that were just loved to death over the last couple of years, they've just, some of them have just been taken to the woodshed. So it's naturally, and it, it's not the decline that I find that bothers people so much. It's all the reasons for the decline that people are watching on TV and when it's when you're seeing what I've been seeing, I'm sure we've all been seeing, eh, you know, you have a flow of thoughts, you know, I, I swing back and forth from, you know, let's go nuke them, just kidding, <laughs> to, you know, let's get very aggressive, let's get in there and do something to, why are we even over, you know, why are we even over there? Yeah. So I don't know what's right or wrong, I'm not even trying to suggest that there is a right or wrong, I'm just admitting how my feelings on a day-to-day -day basis, mainly because of what you visualize, you know, when you start, anytime they start showing pictures of kids and talking about kids yeah. getting killed everybody gets a little more squeamish fred it does seem like before the ukraine war um again the risk nobody was really talking about six months ago or three months ago yeah it looked like there were some things happening over there but nobody was really talking about that as a risk to the economy or the stock market you know and that's the way it usually goes everybody was focused on inflation but it would have seemed to be that even if the correction is partially because 
And it doesn't matter, but even if it is partly as a result of, oh, the Fed's now going to get serious on it. I mean, that's kind of like chemotherapy. It's horrible to go through, but at least we know what to do and it's going right. to heal us. Right. And I think both the uh, the Federal Reserve and the president now have uh, stopped living in kind of a charm world where you could do things without worrying about the consequences. So for de- at least a decade and maybe two decades, uh, the, the monetary fiscal policy would be carried out without a lot of uh, fear about inflation. So uh, you could do things that uh, in the old days you couldn't do and, and you can't do today, which is spend more and more and more money and not have to worry about the consequences in terms of inflation. And, in fact, there was a new a kind of uh, set of what I think would harebrained theories called modern monetary policy where it says don't worry about inflation anymore, just spend all you want. And that worked for – a year or two, but it doesn't work forever. So everything now has consequences. Uh, uh, you know, Becoming more involved in the Ukraine probably means more uh, embargoes and uh, problems in terms of trade, things of that sort. Getting tough on inflation obviously means uh, what you were talking about, more tightness in the economy and maybe slowing of growth. So, so again, it's a world where uh, there are real consequences about everything. And even in, in the Ukraine, it, it, it's easy to say, we should be uh, more helpful, but the question is how helpful and how much do we want to get involved right. and do we want to yep. really tweak Russia uh, too much? And, right. and, and so it's, there's no easy choice there either. I agree. But energy, it seems to me that it's tied to the hip, obviously, to an economy uh, and economic growth. Mm-hmm. It's so important that that's it probably – I would think that it might increase the chance of a recession, though there don't seem to be any signs of a recession. The normal yeah. ones you see would be a, a Fed that's tight – uh, a real uh, the uh, yield curve, yeah. what they call a negative yield ter- curve, where short-term rates are higher than long-term rates, and then a sudden rise in two-year interest rates. You know, those other than the last recession, those are, are almost all conditions of a recession, and we're not seeing right. anything there. In fact, liquidity looks pretty strong. No, I think the there, there was consensus at least prior to the uh, Ukraine incursion that the economy was really overheated. And uh, slowing down now would not be a bad idea, but the problem is that we rarely are able to have the, the so-called soft landing where you slow down a little bit without going into a recession, and that's complicated now by, by the Ukraine. The, the president also faces a problem where he, he has to deal with two different constituencies uh, which don't really agree. One is to at least pretend like he's uh, into the environmental area and global warming and all of that, at the same time, increase oil supply. So the choices there are very, very difficult, too. So he's made some strange choices about uh, not necessarily opening up uh, U.S. production, but then relying more on other other countries, even uh, Venezuela and uh, and the Saudi Arabia. So, again, it's a difficult situation now. Well, it just seems, you know, I'm in my 60s now. It just seems like, like I said, these types of things just never go away. They always manifest in different yeah, formats. There's a, there's but, there's, a, but now uh, suddenly uh, we have inflation where yeah, maybe we, it's always been a risk. Yeah, we just heard there's a, a new book by William Barr, the uh, former attorney general, and his, the title of his book is One Damn Thing After Another, which is <laughs> probably what we're dealing with now. And it's <clears throat> as I told my friend uh, on my text, I said, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch people – react when it comes to their investments in these time periods and you guys can weigh in on this but i said to me it's i've seen this movie a couple of dozen times i know how it ends and i shouldn't expect a different ending this time Uh, corrections are a a normal part of life Um, 
they, as I said, they come like a crosstown bus. But so first of all, they are commonplace. It's just been a while since we've had one, and I think you know, after yeah. you get kind of complacent. Um, the average drawdown on a typical year since 1980 has been about 14 percent a year. So that's sort of where we're at in that neighborhood now. But since night, so but since the beginning of 1980, if you just held on, um, your return with dividends was about 12 percent a year. Right. But yet we had, and the market was positive 32 of 42 years. Yet each year, on average, you had a 14 percent decline. So it's it's kind of a long way of saying. It's part of the process. Part part of the market being much higher today than it was in 1980 was. Right. It, it came with all kinds of upsetting yeah. uh, time periods. And there's not, in, in essence, there's not much you can do about it. No. Russia I or mean, should do about it. Uh, I mean, most uh, portfolios contain a minute fraction that's associated with Russia, and uh, obviously, there's not not much is going to happen there. Secondly, the uh, a private investor doesn't have the pressure for, uh, with the uh, pension fund I'm involved with. Now there's pressure to yeah. divest with with Russia. First of all, we have virtually no investment there. And secondly, uh, divesting at this point is the worst of all worlds because the market has collapsed. You'd be basically uh, throwing away those assets. So it's a, it's a decision that private investors don't have to make, but uh, some pension funds do have to make. Yeah, corrections are, uh, you know, it's, it's part of the process. Um, what are you guys feeling or hearing? I know for the last couple of years, we've been doing a lot of rebalancing uh, because the stock market kept going higher. We've rebalanced by buying bonds and selling what was going up and getting them back to target. For the last 10 years, I've pretty much been suggesting, and I think you guys have been following my lead, that any new clients, uh, we, we was not unusual for us to dollar cost average into their overall equity uh, position that we decide they're going to be in, unless they were already there, and then you know you don't need to change it because it's just not going to be a shock to them. Um, if he, I I was around most of yesterday, so it seems like the phone was kind of quiet. But what, what's give us some feedback about what you're hearing and experiencing? I, I've honestly been surprised how quiet it has been. I don't know if if Ryan's had more calls and emails than I have, but it doesn't sound like it. Um, you know, just see, seeing the news and some of the scary stuff that's going on, I really expected to have more calls than I've had. I've had a couple emails um, and a couple phone calls, really, and none that were super bent out of shape, just really needed some reassurance. Anybody questioning the allocation or why are we invested in this versus that or why aren't we doing these things or is that also quiet? So only, only one of the emails that I received did have a question that I thought was interesting and I, I answered it and I can share how I answered the question but I'd be interested to hear everyone else's take on this and it was do you think the, the question was do you think we should essentially eliminate or sell out of all of our European stock holdings so I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on that and then I'll and I guess the question was probably you know uh, came from Wow, they're dropping bombs over there. It look like looks like Europe could get drawn into this thing. They're certainly, from an economic standpoint, probably going to be a high, pay a higher price uh, than the U.S. So, th therefore, why would we invest in that? Um, I guess I've always been, I believe, in constant commitments, and you can't forecast, and you can't markets can't be predicted. You're either a planner or you're a prognosticator, but you're not, you can't be both. And so my natural reaction would be, okay, uh, and why would we do that? Uh, and, you know, and they kind of go through that with the client. 
And they're probably going to say, well, because of this, this, and this. And how do you think it's going to happen to the market? And why? And how sure can you be? Um, but I think, to me, the only sensible answer is we don't make such prognostications. Therefore, in fact, I suspect if, uh, if, our, uh, if the balancing between U.S. and Europe and international uh, gets sufficiently out, out of line enough, that is, if the European markets on a relative basis are underperforming, that we'll end up shoring those up, which would be almost contrary to what a client might think you would do. Yeah, I think probably the, the clients coming from where most people come from is a matter of, of fear and panic, and they're saying, oh, I've got to do something now before it gets worse because in their mind, inevitably, it's going to get worse. It doesn't mean that actually presents itself and it shows up. Uh, so I'm always careful to remind people that it's okay to have these kinds of fears and these concerns, um, but we also always have to be conscientious of the fact that markets are always forward-looking. They've already essentially priced in everything that we already know about this conflict, this war, whatever you want to call it. And so to do anything thinking that you know more is probably an irrational thought, uh, but it's perfectly human to have that fear and that concern. Um, you know, I always thank a client when they bring these questions to me. I say, thank you for your trust and allowing me to, you know, guide you through, you know, this kind of a time. And when you get that kind of question, you know that that's not the only person. Probably a lot of people are feeling like asking that mm -hmm. question, but just didn't ask it. Yeah. And you say pricing in, including the possibility that it gets even worse than Precisely. it is now. Yeah. So this is by no means, of course, the end all result. It's the prices already reflect essentially any number of avenues that this work could go down, good, bad, ugly, and anywhere in between. So this is kind of the collective minds overlapping and saying this is where we think, you know, prices may be. And then, and, and it's not to say that things couldn't be worse than what the market already has priced in. If that, if it ends up being worse than what market participants in aggregate expect, then yeah, the European markets or European stocks could fall further or get hit particularly hard. But the flip side of that is things could end up being better than mm -hmm. what people currently expect, and you could actually end up getting really strong returns mm -hmm. over there. And the whole point is that we don't know how things are going to turn out. I mean, by definition, it's everyone's making their best guess, and it comes down to whether you think you can predict the future better than you know the aggregate minds of all the investors across it's the world. It's also counterintuitive in this, that... If a stock market falls 20 or 30 percent, that stock market's valuation is more favorable. In other words, the expected return from that point on is higher than it was before it was down. There's this offsetting factor in there that I think people, that's the piece I think people leave out, uh, that yes, it's, it is down, you know, maybe the European market's down 15 percent or, or a little bit more, and uh, maybe it goes down 30 percent, I don't know, but I know one thing, if it is, when you look out over, as Fred talks about, and, and Ryan brought up, the market's already discounted that. It's looking for the next 15, 20, 30, 40 years of what these great companies of Europe are going to produce and saying, wow, I can buy them at a lower price. So I try not to be cliche about it. Um, I, I have found when you're in the retirement business, especially for you younger guys, it's, it's, it's more important uh, because if a 30-year-old or a 35-year-old says, well, you're in it for the long term to the fellow that's 70 years old, uh, they're thinking to themselves, maybe quietly, well, my long term and yours is a lot different. So we, you know, we have found that you just have to 
how you talk about these things. It's important to talk about them, but the main thing is it's important not to do anything. How easy would it be to disentangle your uh, – the way most people invest, you don't invest in a fund that says Europe. <laughs> right. So we don't – like our our investment portfolios, you know, we have basically an entire developed international stock market fund and then an entire emerging market stock fund. So that those two things are broken out in most of our client portfolios. But beyond that, it's really – it's not like European versus others – um, so we would have to essentially sell that entire total international yeah. fund and then basically build a custom allocation yeah. to piecemeal it. So, it, yeah, it, it wouldn't be that difficult, but it wouldn't be as simple as just saying, like, oh, I'm just going to remove the, these stocks from yeah. from and, this fund. And also nowadays uh, the, the domicile of the firm is not necessarily indicative of where they do their business. So there may be uh, American firms that – would be affected, and uh, some European firms not, so it's not easy to disentangle. For sure. And, you know, and one thing that I thought was interesting, too, is just even for my own brain, because I wasn't 100% sure just off the top of my head what percentage of our stock allocation was invested in European um, stocks. And I really didn't isolate it to the penny, but I, it was surprising to me how low of a percentage of our investment portfolios actually ended up in European stocks, because when I looked at this international developed markets fund that we use, and it's going to be similar almost in any other, you know, if you used a Vanguard total international fund, it's going to be similar in this regard. You know, the biggest international holdings were Canada, Australia, and then, you know, there's things like the UK. So it's like, well, how much are they being influenced, you know, right. versus the U.S.? It's, they're pretty far removed from things. Um that was the biggest European holding, and it was only, you know, a, a few percent of our stock allocation was, you know, in in the UK, and then everything else, you know, the other the other European countries would be even smaller percentages. So all in, it was a relatively small portion of the investment portfolio. Especially, you know, if you're not 100% stock, so you had half your money in bonds. Now we're talking about, you know, probably only a couple percent of your overall money is invested in. European stocks, which I thought I thought was interesting and and good to know as well, um, and same you know it, that kind of goes along with the the Russia thing. I don't think really we have any meaningful, if any, <laughs> allocation to Russia. But not to say that some companies aren't going to be indirectly affected by that. And I was just looking this morning. I kind of you know I, I have the composite basically of what our international our global overall between us and everything all in portfolio is down maybe a little bit less than the s&p 500 so it's it's really behaving in a similar fashion even though the european markets and the emerging markets have been hit harder yeah and i just looked this morning out of curiosity because i knew we were going to talk about this at the vanguard total international stock index fund which isn't necessarily one that we use it's just a pure index fund that covers both developed and emerging markets and it was down it was like 12 point something percent year to date yeah, which, which is right in line with the u.s stock market or u.s large companies i suppose so i thought that was interesting as well just that you, intuitively you would think that international stocks would be down more than like the s&p 500 but it was actually it's been a pretty similar experience so far well, getting back to inflation, um, people are kind of stunned now, but it's something we've always addressed and we've always talked about with clients uh, and some, 
you know, your brother, my, my son Paul, wrote in the News Gazette this past Sunday an article about inflation was always a risk. Um, but, but people are always wondering, well, how, are you, how do you position yourself suddenly now that everybody's aware of this inflation risk? And inflation risk to retirees, like anybody else's, look, at, it can degrade your standard of living if you're not doing something to offset it. Um, it, but it strikes me that, and, and people probably expect this out of me, but dividends are an important role in income to me. I think that's one of the best places to get income as opposed to bonds. And I, was, uh, I saw a chart, and it showed dividends on the S&P 500 in 2020 were $58.95. In 2021, they were $60.54. The estimate for 2022 is almost $67, and then for the following year, essentially 70 rounded up just a little bit. And that's, you know, so people are having a tough time in bonds, but I think sometimes we ignore, We I talk a lot about owning the great companies of America and the world as being an inflation hedge, but uh, some of that inflation hedge is the fact that the income stream has gone up significantly more than the inflation rate itself historically. And I know this has been talked about a lot before is, you know, what do you do? Is it, well, you don't have very many levers. People are looking for this magic pill during times of high inflation, right? It's like, well, we have to do something What about now. gold? What about oil? What about commodities? Right. And, and everybody's looking for this, you know, seemingly magic pill to take, and it doesn't truly exist. What I'm always uh, thinking of is that, well, if we can accept the fact that there is no magic cure-all, and that we kind of get back to our home base and not try to look at you know outside of what we've been doing. Stocks, you know, historically speaking, over bonds produce far greater returns given a long enough period of time. And historically speaking, I think data going back to uh, like the 80s shows that like the uh, dividend return has been around 5.9 percent. So when you look at the the inflation rate now being a little over 7 percent or whatever it may be. And you look at dividends trying to you know trying to keep pace just shy of six percent, you can see that you know folks who are, have more dollars invested towards stocks and bonds will be able to cover inflation far better than someone who's more heavily invested in bonds or or going to a cash scenario like and, a lot of folks do. Does that make sense? Because while in the near term it may not work out well for you, mm-hmm. but given some time, and I'm not talking about I don't want to use the word long term, but given enough time, a reasonable amount of time, uh, these companies seem to have pricing power, Fred, where part of that inflation offset is the fact that, yes, they are in because because of inflation, they're raising prices on their uh, products that they produce. And therefore, there's there's some level of offset that corporations uh, can basically put on the backs of the consumers. And they do. Yeah. And most people probably nowadays don't even see dividends. It, it all goes through a yes. mutual fund. So like in my case, I get a return on my uh, uh, passive investments. Right. I don't know what's what's what. Which, which capital gains and how much is uh, uh, dividends? Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that's that. You know, and that of course that's what we almost always focus on is total mm-hmm. return. But a big part of total return historically has come from the reinvestment of dividends, and yeah. so it's a important distinction. And we know that. You know, the other thing is, you know, it's tempting to suddenly gold is finally about to take over its all time high inflation adjusted price goes back to about 1981. And so I think a lot of people are confusing that as it's an all time high. Yeah, on an inflation adjusted basis, it is, but it's barely kept up with inflation over that period of time. And 
I suppose right now there's going to be a lot more focus on gold uh, because of the war, and, and not just inflation, but kind of what's going on in Ukraine, so probably. But again, trying to then you're now you're becoming a forecaster, and you know what the outcome's going to be. And not only do you know what the outcome's going to be, or at least you think you do, you think you have the cure for it, and you know what asset classes are going to be respond well. That's a big ask, and that's why time and time again. I've seen that fail as opposed to look since the end of since the end of World War II so go to the back to the beginning of 1946 we've had 60 uh, through through 2021 we've had 60 corrections or bear markets two of the four worst ever and the and dividends alone are 90 times higher than they were at the start of 1946 and the cost of living is up 15 uh, 15 times um so I, you know, to me, it always strikes me that investors are always looking to add one more thing that can go wrong. Okay, <laughs> always, and they now they have different ways to describe it, and it's a different question. But what they're really asking you is, can you help me find one more way to be wrong? And they're always looking for an alternative investment, right? I'm thinking, I don't know, uh, a, a stock market that goes up 275 fold. Since World War II, dividends go up 90-fold and inflation's up 15-fold. Why are we looking for – we know what – historically speaking, at least, we know what one of the greatest inflation hedges crafted by the hands of mankind has been the ownership of the great companies of America and the world. But yet, like a shiny object – well, gold is a shiny object – people want to take their eyes off what the solution's right in front of them. Well, it's funny how often – I mean, I feel like – Sometimes we sound like a broken record because almost every one of our discussions comes back to, well, you can't time the market. You can't forecast the returns of specific asset classes. But fundamentally, it seems like that's what everyone really deep down wants you to do. And I think the reason that they're looking for an alternative, despite the incredible track record of owning the great companies of the world, is that you had to go through a lot of pain to get those good <laughs> good returns. Right. And no one wants to go through the pain and basically, you know, people don't want to accept reality that they're the cost of earning good returns and having a positive investment experience is going through the tough times and that you, you really can't avoid that. It gets back to investing over one's lifetime is simple, but it's not easy. Yeah. And what people want to do, the market timers want to do now what they should have done six months or a year ago. Right. I mean, it's too late to buy gold now, even if. It was You're buying idea. it at one of the all-time high yeah. prices. So, I mean, again, doing what you should have done a year ago is not what you should do today, right. so, which means don't time the market. Exactly. And, and just this is backtracking a little bit, but that was – so basically my answer to the client about the international stocks was along those lines of, look, this really comes down to whether you think you can forecast the returns of various asset classes and which one will do better than another one over a given period of time. All the evidence that I've ever seen suggests that that cannot be done consistently. I mean, if you look at the performance of uh, actively managed mutual funds, many of which are trying to predict the future returns of various asset classes, or even from a bigger picture standpoint, like tactical asset allocation models, like these fund managers that try to pick funds and, and shift their asset allocation based on forecasts of you know, returns of different asset classes, the performance of those types of invest, investment vehicles and investment managers has been just really poor relative to just Why do you guys think that people believe it's even relevant, right, that 
sidestepping a correction or trying to predict and trying to be in the prediction game that that's even relevant to a, a lifetime yeah. of success. Yeah. Because my, my, I always wanted my gut, if I could just be blunt, you know, with clients, but sometimes you can't be. You have to be forceful and sometimes you just be sort of blunt. But if you just looked at the client and say, well, uh, it can't be done and two, it's irrelevant. Okay, what you're worrying about is irrelevant to your lifetime success. But probably maybe a little too blunt. (laughs) But the most important part to not sound like a grouch is that it doesn't need to be done to have successful experience. Uh, Interesting aside is that uh, one of the biggest failures in history uh, was based on the ruble, the long term capital, which was Nobel Prize winners knowing how to beat the market. uh, Turned out their uh, their assumption about the ruble was wrong, and they basically. Uh, if not gone bankrupt, they became insolvent. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, so it's, the the landscape is littered with people that, with PhDs that predicted, uh, and that blew themselves up. And many times, unfortunately, they blew their clients up. But the the whole point is, and sometimes I'm even reluctant to talk about this after a, a twelve or thirteen percent correction that are common as dirt. One of the things I'm really careful of with clients is not to, you know, be act like I'm alarmed because. After 39 years, I'm not alarmed really by anything, but it's real, it's real tempting to want to always reach out to your clients and send them a flash email about the correction and how everything's okay. I have found over my career it's, it's more useful to almost ignore it and, and answer their questions if they have them, but you don't need to be the one to bring it up because I don't want to give anybody a sense of, of relevance to a common correction or a bear market. It's just unpredictable. If you want the lifetime return of owners of the great companies of America and the world have not only had substantial income increases beyond inflation, but substantial capital appreciation and substantial returns. They've earned twice the returns of the bondholder or the lenders to the same companies. That wasn't free. It's simply a trade-off of one investment that's predictable and since it's predictable, it shouldn't pay me much of a return after taxes and inflation, and they never have. And another asset class, which is owning the great companies of America and the world, it is extremely unpredictable over the near term. Yep. And, and that is the trade-off. And there's anything you do, in my experience, any strategy to reduce volatility or what some people call risk, I call it fluctuation amongst the permanent uptrend, any any strategy that's trying to suppress the volatility is also going to suppress return. So you have to make sure that you also want to suppress your return by taking on certain actions. Well, and I think the flip side of that is oftentimes when people attempt to enhance investment returns through prediction-based approaches to investing like stock picking or market timing or, or you know, shifting asset allocation tends to actually end up detracting from investment returns. So you can kind of get into trouble both ways. Fred, it doesn't seem like the markets are uh, suggesting or predicting the end of the world if you look at the market indicators themselves. But one of the interesting things is in the last inflationary era, it was I, I believe it is the same reason as this one, too much money supply in the system compared to demand. But the dollar's value declined and the commodity prices went up. Now we're seeing both the dollar strong and commodity prices up. That's, yeah. That certainly seems to me, I don't know in the total context of history if that's unprecedented, but it was certainly not the way it was in the 70s and early 80s. Right. Well, I think uh, one thing, uh, uh, no matter how uh, how many problems the U.S. economy has, the U.S. economy is still the 
strongest in the world. And the dollar has some real uh, attraction to people. So uh, the fact all these other bad things are happening in other parts of the world probably uh, reinforces that on people's minds. Yeah, and of course that could lead somebody to say, well, why don't I just invest in America then if it's the strongest country? Well, if we go back to the last round of inflation, one of the cures in the 70s, late between the mid-60s and the very early 80s when we had extraordinarily high inflation, one of the best asset classes to be owned would have been international stocks back then. Doesn't make it case, doesn't make it uh, so that it's going to be this time, but it certainly, historically speaking, you would do, you would only invest in U.S. stocks at your peril, you know, during an inflationary well, period. And, and again, it gets back to what you pay for something matters. I mean, if if the market has already accounted for the fact that the U.S. economy is the strongest economy in the world and projected to do better in the future than European stocks, then the U.S. stock market would theoretically already be price, like pricing that in. It would already have done better <laughs> up until this point. And then going forward, you don't know how it's going to perform relative to international stocks as well. So it all gets down to, okay, everything that we know, like Ryan said, that's already baked into the current prices. And everything we expect in the future, that's baked into the prices too. So really what comes down to, you know, what moves prices is new information that we really couldn't have predicted in advance. So it always circles back to that almost in a frustrating way. It's, it's well, yeah, you and I and everybody else know that inflation's big, and you and I and everybody else know that gold is higher, you know, than it was a month or two ago. Um, but what we don't know is what's going to move it from here. And based on that, then, it's just, that's where Jack Bogle always said, uh, the leader of Vanguard, everybody's nature is don't just stand there do something where he says the real you know trick or secret to lifetime investment success is don't just do something stand there and i think that's really hard for people to to embrace that i I think just naturally being humans i think it's hard to embrace that fred you know it seems to me like the uh, financial media there's always they look at anything and make it negative. Yeah. And I, I noticed an article oh, a couple of weeks back where they talked about credit card debt and household debt is at an all time high. And then they failed to mention that household net worth is at an all time high. Sure. And that didn't shock me. My question is this. When I look at household debt service ratio, debt payments as a percent of disposable personal income. In other words, people's ability to pay for their interest and debt payments right now it's below it's below where it's you know in other words it's households and from that standpoint are in better shape than they've ever been is it is there a potential that most people consumers are just better off personally financially to deal with inflation than they might have been say in the 70s well, I, I, yeah i think <clears throat> think so at least uh, temporarily again uh as you said people are, are uh in a situation where they have uh, assets they probably didn't have in the past, and those can be used to buffer the influences. But, again, that, that can't go on forever. So the, the inflation of the 70s was more ingrained and lasted longer. The question now is whether we're going to deal with it. It's only been going on now for less than a year. So if uh, we can rein things in, I think it will, it will be not much of a problem at all. But if it escalates, obviously, the, the uh, buffer is going to go away at some point. Well, inflation certainly hurts the working person. Uh, I think that's pretty clear. A four to five dollar gas. Uh, the rich country clubber isn't feeling it. 
uh, in the same way just the regular working person is. And that uh, that seems to be ignored. And, and over Fred's sh- shoulder is the, I guess it's Fox News, and I was watching President Biden was giving a speech, and I can only see the subtitles yeah. below it, but it said now is not the time for companies to be gouging in prices yeah. and you know it just seems to be so clueless to me when it comes to that it's yeah. as if, and uh, we need to be energy independent and all these just contrary signals um, right. that it just strikes me sometimes if you don't know what the what's causing inflation it's going to be harder to figure out the reason uh, the solution to fixing it yeah the the the, the fallacy of the the argument there is that uh Suddenly, uh, companies became greedy when we had inflation. With uh, companies are greedy all the time; uh, they'll take advantage of any time. Whereas suddenly, uh, the monopoly power in whichever market it is will be exercised. Well, again, that monopoly power hasn't changed in the last few months. So the, the fact is, if they had the power to do these bad things, it would have been done already. So it, they're, they're basically responding to the market. I mean, anyone can open a, I guess, a gasoline station and charge uh, three fifty a gallon now, but they're not going to do very well. Yeah, I just I just happened to notice that, and those kind of things just really bug me. And I'm an equal opportunity critic, so I'll criticize any size of the aisle. <laughs> well, I think, but again, it's it's looking for the easy solution to blaming right. uh, greedy companies is probably easier than saying we need to uh, have some real austerity in terms of spending. So, guys, the newly minted 62-year-old couple that walks in, assuming they have enough to retire, and we've made that decision – any strategy differences today than six months ago? I, like, I literally, are you doing anything different than you would have six months ago before some of these, you know, we, we started seeing inflation by then, but. I'm going to pay more attention and give more leeway to hearing out, like, you know, true fears and concerns when I'm making recommendations. Because, you know, if you if you put somebody in an investment allocation and they can't stick with it or it causes them to do the absolute worst thing, which, of course, is selling out, going to cash, hiding out in bonds, whatever it may be, however you define it, that's an, an allocation that's that's a failure. So I'm more willing to entertain uh, dollar cost averaging um, than maybe I would have been before because I'm kind of a stickler for looking at, you know, what is – you know, what does history tell us from, like, return standpoints? I know, historically speaking, you're better off to invest a, a lump sum of money today than it is to spread it out over time. Um, but I also am very um, – I'm weighing that equally with the concern of, well, what if it goes down 10 20 percent over the next few months? Now I've got a client who's just now looking down the barrel of a, a 30-plus year retirement thinking, there goes 20 percent of my money that maybe I had or 10 percent of my money that I had that had we just had a more cautious approach – by cautious, I just mean going in slower rather than all at once. It, it might have a different mental impact on the client than a, a necessarily bigger uh, financial Just pick up impact. more on the sensitivities uh, more. And what about, so say you had somebody three months ago or six months ago that you decided you were going to take a year to every month, uh, well, you call it dollar cost averaging. We're just saying, look, if we're going to get uh, – $120,000 into the stock market, we're going to put in 10000 a month. Are you doing some speeding up of those for those people that have kind of been active in that? Only a very tiny bit. I'm not a huge fan of speeding up unless it's like a really drastic decline because that's kind of market timing. <laughs> uh, but there is just sometimes a, a degree of judgment. It's like, as Ryan said, also just dollar cost averaging in general is kind of like 
market timing in a way that it's it like, is. But well, you're kind of saying, well, I'm worried returns are going to be bad in the near future, so I'm going to dollar cost average in. So there's, I think you know, these I'm are the worried. things that are. I, I I look at it a little differently. I guess I my concern is no, I can't predict what's going to happen. But when you're at all time highs, uh, I'm trying to predict how the client might behave. Right. If suddenly on the front end of retirement, a portion of their portfolio is down twenty or twenty five percent, that's I'm trying to uh, kind of fix that potential problem ahead of time and announcing to them up front, it will probably going to regret it financially. To, that's the psychological side of the business where I've always tried to. And you, you, I think you hit it right, Ryan. You're maybe pick, picking up on those cues a little more tightly right now. Uh, I'm looking for any way I can to get that person to where they need to be as soon as I can, but but allow them to survive at the same time. Yeah, and so I think my issue is the market's still only down, you know, what? No, 12, Dave's 12, issue is he's rigid, 12 Ryan. <laughs> well, it's only down 12% or so, so the speeding up thing is like, well, you could do that and then get hammered. Right. You know, it could fall a lot further soon after that. It's not like the market's... Yes, yeah, my trigger's where, always been, you know, if we get into correction territory, I'll probably add one month. That, that's basically what. And we go into yeah. bear market territory, I'll probably add two more months. And then just, yeah. and maybe even to say, you know what, I'm not going to play around anymore. I'm done dollar cost averaging. <laughs> I've achieved my objective. I was worried about it. If it goes down from being down 30% to 40%, I'll fight that fight with the client. But, you know, there, there, there's no perfect science to this. In other words... Dave doesn't like it because he can't stand anything to do. And that's not a criticism. This is just a principal rigidness that, no, it's just a form of market timing. Forget it. Um, I'm going to confess no. my own market timing. Ryan always reminds me that I always do the uh, 529 contribution. Oh, give us an update, my, my Fred. I'm going to do it now oh. <laughs> <laughs> rather than waiting until de- uh, December. It's like even right now, I'm still an accumulator because I've got a lot of years I still want to work. Uh, so I'm in, and so every month I put a certain amount in. We call it the Betterment, which is our co-pilot program. Uh, well, that hit today, so I'm happy about that. And then you said that then our 401k contributions were probably what a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Still a nice down period. We were still close, if not in correction per- period. So for accumulators, it's a lot easier. Uh, this volatility. Again, I hate to even talk about it. <laughs> it's, what's ironic is almost paradoxical is we're talking a lot about something that we shouldn't probably even be talking about because it's like, hey, guys, it's uh, 30 degrees outside and it's March. Can you believe it? And it's like, well, how long have you lived in Illinois? Oh, my whole life. And you're surprised that it's 30 degrees and it's March 8th. And it's like, well, no, why would I be? It's kind of the same thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's just an interesting interesting field of psychology and being an investment advisor particularly i think for retirees because now their future their life is in your hands they're looking to you to figure out how much they can spend sensibly etc it's 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 it's, there's so much of it it's a psychological dynamic uh then actually managing portfolios are easy but you know just trying to you know get the client through the tough periods on the front end of retirement um, that's where you really earn a lot of your money. You know, and you started by asking, are we doing anything differently? And my, I mean, my short answer is no, but I did have a client ask, well, what what would happen, he, this person isn't retired yet, what would happen if um, instead of our, you know, normal, we have a certain percentage spending increase kind of planned right. in the plan each year, 
What if we increased that to, say, 4% per year, just assuming we have higher right. higher than average inflation? And I was like, oh, well, we could just test that. <laughs> so I just tested it, showed the impact to the retirement spending. And it was a substantial impact because, as you know, we typically use 2% annual spending increases. Reason for that is historically infa- inflation has been about 3% uh, compounded over time. And research shows that retirees tend to increase their spending about 1% slower than the rate of inflation. So we were just kind of reflecting what retirees actually do. And then obviously we generally are able to increase even faster than what the initial plan says we're going to do. Um, But it did. It significantly – it had a pretty significant impact on the starting retirement spending. And so this – my takeaway was – Look, if people are really, really stressed out about having higher than average inflation, we can always build a plan that assumes we're going to have higher than average inflation. But there's a cost to doing that, and the cost is that you're going to start out spending less because we're assuming that we're going to increase that spending more significantly over time. And it's probably going to take a larger uh, percentage of allocation in the great companies of America and the world. In other words, if if you might have been 50 or 60% stocks, it might require 70 to 80% stocks, which is mean you're going to have more unpredictability along the way. But if we're anticipating higher than trend line inflation, that may be part of the cure as well. So there's, there's all these trade-offs that we have to have. Do your clients actually spend all the money they take out? I mean, it's possible they could take out a lot and, not just, and start saving again. We definitely have some that, that probably don't spend the full monthly amount that we send them. Um, generally, if that happens for an extended period of time, their checking account balance grows. They notify yeah. us, and we reduce the withdrawal at that point. But yeah, yeah, it's a, interesting. It's a, it's a, you know, you have, you have a certain percentage that can spend anything you can sell, send them. But that's a, that's a small uh, percentage of them. Most of our clients, I think, because if you, now we're talking about just regular people. Um, the reason they got the assets that they they ended up with the assets they have is because they were somewhat frugal their whole life. It's not to a person, but largely broad brush. That's the case. And what I found out, Fred, is you you can't. Well, I was kids you no, know, I always say you can't make a dog a cat. You can't make a non spender a spender. So many times our clients. It's not unusual for pretty good percentage of our clients to actually say, "Oh, I know you say I could spend six thousand a month, but I can't." go out of my way to spend 5000 And that just makes their plan more bulletproof and more inflation-proof at the same time. But there's all these trade-offs uh, about things we don't know in the future. I mean, when you think about when a client walks into a retirement planner, they want to know how much they can spend between their Social Security, the University of Illinois pension, uh, and their assets, maybe some farm income. And you stir them all together, and you can come up with a pretty sensible number of, here's what I think your lifestyle is going to look like. Um, but when you th- really think of the challenge of this, think about the things we don't know over the next 30 years. We don't know what returns are going to be. That's kind of a big deal. We don't know what inflation is going to be. We don't know what their life expectancy is going to be. We don't know what their health span is going to be. How long are they going to be able to travel and do those things? Uh, so you have to do the best you can, and that's why we do a lot of simulation, and we, we test thousands of different potential outcomes and say, Boy, are enough of them, do enough of them satisfy us? And are we okay with the small percentage of the times where we might not be able to live up to that standard of living? It might be a little bit lower than that. And at this point, that's about the best anybody can do. It's about the best they can ask for. 
there's really no magic out there. So, Fred, how much, uh, what do you think, uh, what's your fear now in the near term of a recession? And the reason I ask that is because I always think of sudden increases and substantial increases in energy prices, oil prices, seem to start making a recession a lot easier. Well, certainly higher than the past, but I still think it's pretty low given the excess demand in the economy. And again, it always hedges by you know, how bad things get in the Ukraine. And I, I would think probably not. Uh, and still a, a, a low probability, but somewhat higher than a few months ago. Do you think um, the gradual way they're talking about going by, about it, uh, increasing interest rates, maybe a quarter percent per month for 8, 10, 12 months, <laughs> could maybe make it last longer. In other words, if I know that it is a long time, we're still going to have negative real interest rates. That's really an incentive for me to borrow and buy stuff. Yeah. But fine tuning and the soft landing is really accomplished. And again, uh, the Fed is not totally in charge. If, if Congress keeps spending more and more money, it's going to be difficult. But I think there there's a chance they can uh, not necessarily have a, a soft landing, but at least avoid a, a crash landing. And a lot of people, like me, I look at that they overstayed and they, over, you know, sure. they let, I, I think they let the mismatch between money supply and demand go way too long. So it just shows you they're trying to make educated, you know, uh, decisions about that. And that's really hard to get right. So that's probably this, for the same reason, it's probably hard to engineer a soft landing. Well, I think they, they got used to living in the free lunch era where you could uh, uh, there keep interest rates low and not worry about inflation. And that obviously has come to an end, but it didn't come to an end very soon. It was dec- a decade or more. And it almost seems like the bond market assumes that the Fed's going to get it right, because when you look at inflation expectations over the next five to 10 years, yeah. it's in the upper 2% to lower 3 percentage. Right. Uh, and that doesn't mean that's what inflation's going to be, but that's what mil- hundreds of millions of people that trade in the bond markets and, and invest in bonds, their best thinking is, that's probably what it is to expect, and that's a lot of overlapping minds. And they could be wrong, right. but that's just kind of the assessment. Right. In the, the late 70s, the interest rates were at or above the inflation rates, and that's not even close to the situation Do now. you think there's, we have the, even the political will? Uh, you know, it took 10 years to knock out inflation, uh, and then they, Volcker, in my view, did that once he took the Fed funds rate above the inflation rate, yeah. uh, which— then it made no sense to borrow and buy any right. longer. Do you think there's a political will if we need to do, if we need found that we needed to do that, that it could that could get done? Well, I think we could do it now because the price isn't going to be that high now. In the uh, late '70s, you had built-in expectations for a decade and long-term interest. You could get a CD for twelve or thirteen percent in those days, and you have to really break that uh, kind of cycle of expected. Inflation, I don't think that really is ingrained yet. So if we act uh, fairly quickly, I think it, it could be done. Because it really is about it. It's not, it's not the today's inflation rate. It's really what the infl- inflation expectations are. That's where it gets kind of into it. Yeah, and the long-term interest rate is still, well, obviously, well below. All right. Well, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more of Paul Rudy's On the Money. Thanks for joining us today. We covered quite a bit. And uh, hopefully it was interesting. And uh, if not, we'll be back in two weeks to do even better. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS. 
paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station.